In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Well, thank you, Christy, with all of those announcements and everything else we had going on today. Great job with that. Well, church, I, th- I think probably most of us this week, this has been an uh, emotional roller coaster at times since you know, last weekend as we have seen all of the images of what's been taking place uh, in the world, especially in the Middle East. I think um, all of us, our hearts are broken as we think about and we see the, the children that were massacred in the uh, invasion from Hamas, and then now we see... Uh, innocent children uh, who are dying as they're caught in the crossfire between the military of Israel that has to respond to this and Hamas that won't hesitate to use children as a, as a shield. And, and so there's just devastation and there's tragedy on both sides of the border in this event. And as I've been following this probably too much this week, uh, than maybe what is healthy. I, I couldn't help but notice responses on social media and going on Twitter or X or whatever it's known as nowadays and, and following different ones who respond. Some, of course, very appropriate, appalled uh, at the horror of it. And then seeing, though, responses from uh, quarters, different, different portions of the world where they're celebrating what took place and the invasion and the killings that are taking place as if those, uh, those people in Israel deserve to be wiped out because they're Jewish. And what was even more appalling was seeing how people from Christian circles within America, uh, part of evangelical Christians or supposedly evangelical Christians who have embraced political ideologies that are evil and they're unbiblical, they're unscriptural. They're out of the pit of hell. Can I say it any firm, more firmly than this? That they celebrate the death of these children and these people in Israel as if uh, this is part of God's wrath being poured out upon them for rejecting Jesus. And all kinds of responses, some good, many reprehensible. And then others that were just 
befuddling, frustrating to see the number of people who they, their understanding of world events is so myopic. It's so me-oriented, self-centered. There's no understanding of history and how we get here. And so it's all about us. And, and then, as is often the case in American Christianity, there's just this theological anemia that underlies so many of the statements that take place. I mean, after all, doesn't God have to work in the world in a way that is acceptable to me? Okay, right, no. Short answer, no, he doesn't. And in fact, our passage this morning demonstrates that God upends the status quo to accomplish his will. With all the events this past week, I want you to be assured that this upheaval of the status quo in Israel did not catch God by surprise. And in all of the evil that we are seeing work itself out, in the Middle East right now, be assured that God is at work. We prayed a few moments ago for the Middle East, and I'm sure most of us are going to continue to pray this week for what's happening around the world, and we'll be praying, I think, for months ahead. Well, as we pray, I hope that our text this morning, a text, by the way, that is greatly revered, within the history of the church. Again, we, unfortunately, we don't know history like we used to maybe in past generations, but for 2,000 years, this passage has been studied and revered and sung or read or chanted or prayed throughout the church for the last 2,000 years. It is a revered text, and my hope is that this text will encourage you to persist in your prayer for what is taking place around the world. That this text this morning will help shape your understanding, better help you understand who God is, how we should pray to him, how we should worship him, even in the midst of a crisis like this. So I've entitled the message this morning, A Song of Praise and Revolution. Almost like a song of fire and ice, but not quite. A song of praise and revolution. And let's begin this morning by noting first two inspired, uh, two spirit-inspired greetings in verses 39 to 45. Now, to catch you up on context, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Luke. Remember, beginning of Luke, Gabriel the angel appears to Zechariah the priest when he's in the temple, carrying out that worship that was part of the ceremony. And he announces to old Zechariah that his wife, who is equally elderly, past the years of childbirth, that this woman who has been barren, they are finally going to have a child. God is going to work a miracle in her womb, and they will get pregnant, and their son is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while in the womb, and he will be the fulfillment of God's promises and the prophecies in the Old Testament that God will send a forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah. So the Messiah is on the horizon, and their son is going to be the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Six months later, by the way, they go home. Remember, Zechariah didn't believe Gabriel, and he was struck deaf and dumb, right? And Elizabeth gets pregnant. Six months later, Gabriel comes to Mary. 
announces to her, the Holy Spirit is gonna do a miracle in your womb. Your virgin womb will conceive. The Holy Spirit's gonna create life and that life is going to be the Messiah. His name will be Jesus, the Son of God. And as proof of this, that this is going to happen, Mary, your cousin, Elizabeth, the old barren woman, is carrying the promised forerunner. That's the context. Mary ponders this, and the passage says she gets up and she makes the journey to see Elizabeth. Now listen, this is no little you know, trip around the block. Uh, Mary lives in Nazareth, up in Galilee. Elizabeth and Zechariah, they live in a town about five miles west of Jerusalem. Most of the priests live within a walking distance of Jerusalem so they could do their service. So Mary has to travel for about three days, maybe even four days, 75 miles across mountainous terrain, rocky terrain, a difficult journey. Remember, Mary is a young teenager. She, she is just basically past puberty, gotten into puberty, right? She is a young girl. She makes this trip by herself to Elizabeth. And when she gets there, well, actually, before she gets there, I want you to think about what was probably going through her mind. She's pondering what Gabriel has told her. This young lady who has been you know, immersed in the scriptures at the knees of her parents, clearly comes from a, a, a godly home in the synagogue. She spent her life learning the, the scriptures from her parents in the synagogue, singing the Psalms as part of their worship. And she's pondering all that Gabriel says. She gets to Elizabeth's house and she shouts out a hello to her. And at that point, we see the very first spirit-inspired greeting. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Remember, from the womb... John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. And as Mary calls out to him, John the Baptist begins his prophetic ministry. And he, he leaps in the womb of Mary. Now, now, don't miss the significance of this event. This, this event is known as the visitation. And, and through the centuries, artists of, of every cut have imagined what this scene was like. In a, in a few weeks, Catherine and I are going to be in Florence with our son and daughter-in-law. And Florence was the home and the seat of the Italian Renaissance. And in the 15th century, one of those artists by the name of Domenico Ghirlandaio, I've probably butchered his last name, uh, he was a, a mentor to Michelangelo, a, a, a you know, a, associate with Botticelli. He's, his frescoes and paintings are in the Sistine Chapel. He took a cut at imagining the visitation. I think it was on a retainer. He was paid to make it. And you look at this beautiful painting. It's gorgeous, isn't it? And, and, but there's only two problems with it. One, um, Mary and Elizabeth were not clothed in the fine adornment of the Medici banking families and all the other wealthy people of Renaissance Florence. Not at all, right? And secondly, ladies, every one of you, moms, he completely misses Elizabeth's reaction. Elizabeth would not have had this, oh, I mean, moms, do you remember how your baby would move in your belly around six months, okay? You got that movement, that fluttering that goes on. Remember the difference between six months and nine months? Yeah, you remember that, okay? So, you may, I, I mean, I, I know sometimes it was really funny. We'd be sitting on the couch, and all of a sudden, Catherine would go, whoa, 
You know, that kind of thing. Well, the word here, leap for joy. I want you to take that moment at nine months and put it on steroids. Because that word leap is the word used in the Bible like when a, a calf is out in the field and it's just running and leaping and jumping as high as it can, just going and running and jumping. That's the reaction that happened in side of Elizabeth with John the Baptist. And I guarantee you when that happened, Mary was not, or Elizabeth was not like, she was like, ah, okay. But that does not make a good painting. But I guarantee you that was the reaction. You with me, moms? Amen? Yeah, okay. That's what's going on here. And so from the very beginning, he does this. You know, it's uh, Philip Ryken. He says that uh, John the Baptist was the only child to use a womb for a pulpit. (laughs) The only child to use the womb for a pulpit. In the womb, John the Baptist begins fulfilling his prophetic role of pointing to Jesus and prophesying about Jesus. And when he comes into the presence of Jesus, he is filled with joy. In fact, John the Baptist's life is bookended with joy over the presence of Jesus. Many years later, when he's nearing his death, he's going to be executed for his preaching against Herod and his proclamation of Jesus as Messiah. John the Baptist says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The first spirit-inspired greeting comes from that six-month-old baby who leaps for joy. You know, just as a side note, on the, on the issue of abortion, this passage has a lot to say about what happens inside the womb of a woman and the baby who is, in this case, spirit-filled, used by God to prophesy. And notice that this baby has emotions in the womb. Just something to think about. Then there's a second greeting, Elizabeth's song of blessing. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist from conception is filled with the Holy Spirit, the only baby that we know of to ever have that designation. But now the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, and she exclaims with a loud cry, or she begins to sing, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now the key word in this entire song, this entire passage over and over again is the word blessed. There's actually two different underlying Greek words that are used. One you're familiar with, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a certain Greek word. But this one is the word from which we get the English word eulogy, good words, a good state of being. And so she's saying, Mary, you are blessed. You are in a state of blessing because you have received God's favor. Verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Mary is blessed in her pregnancy. The child is blessed in his identity. And what is his identity? My Lord. Elizabeth is the first person to verbally profess 
belief and faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. She is using the messianic titles that come, for example, from Psalm 110, where we read, the Lord says to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. All who are here this morning who maybe are struggling, don't miss the gospel application in Elizabeth's song. The joy, the peace, and the joy that you are seeking, it's found in the person and in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who gives that joy and peace. Verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. God's favor rests upon Mary, not through her own works, not because of innate righteousness that she exercised in such a way that it impressed God and induced him to give her his favor. No, it came through faith. She believed what God said to her. Then she entrusted herself to God in humble reliance upon God. She says, what God says about me is what is true, and I'm going to now trust that. And she then arises and acts upon it. It takes a 75-mile journey to see her cousin Elizabeth. You know, if you're needing joy this morning, don't look to Mary as your source of faith. But I'll tell you, she is an excellent model of saving faith. To have this deep, soul-satisfying peace and joy that you may want this morning, we have to interact with God through faith. And this faith is not just intellectual acknowledgement of biblical facts. There is a heart condition here. It's entrusting ourselves to God because we believe what he has said about himself. We believe what he has said about us and our sin and our need of redemption and our need of having the spirit live within us. This belief in God is what allows us to stop working to impress him, to try to have a relationship with him that is a quid pro quo kind of transactional relationship. Instead, we can simply rest in the favor that God pours out upon us because we are in Jesus Christ. And it's out of this state of acceptance of God's favor and what he's declared about us that we can then joyfully engage with our world and obey God and seek to follow our Lord. This is biblical faith. This is what you see in Mary. So first we have the two spirit-inspired greetings, and then we have a song of praise and revolution. Mary's song is the first of four incarnational songs in the book of Luke. It is known as the Magnificat, okay? The Magnificat, that, comes, that word comes from the Latin translation of the Bible done in the 300s by St. Jerome, I might say. Uh, Jerome is my formal name, all right? St. Jerome. Uh, and that the, in the Latin, the, our word magnifies. English is the Latin word magnificat. 
This is an incredible song. In fact, it is so incredible that modern scholars can't accept that Mary could have sung it. It is that deep. It is that profound. I mean, scholars, pastors, theologians have studied this song for 2,000 years. Every single phrase of this song is linked to an Old Testament passage. Mary quotes from, as she's singing, she is quoting or alluding to like 11 or 12 different Old Testament books that she's pulling from. Her, her song clearly is influenced by the Psalms. She, as probably any Jewish child raised in a, a faithful family, they had sung the Psalms so much. Those words were planted deep in, the heart, in her heart. And at the same time, her song has a lot of parallels to Hannah's song in the Old Testament. Remember Hannah? She, is the, she was another woman who could not conceive and trying and trying and trying. And finally, she says to God, if you will just give me a child, I will dedicate him to you. And he does. And that is the prophet Samuel. And when she has that child, she breaks out in a song. And there's parallels between Hannah's song and Mary's song. And so so skeptics say there's no way a 13-year-old Jewish girl from, you know, Nazareth could have ever sung a song that is this rich and this full. You're right. She couldn't have, apart from the Holy Spirit's indwelling. All scriptures inspired by God, and Mary was inspired by God. And she had three days to think about all that was going on. I wonder what that inner dialogue was like between her and the Holy Spirit on that trip. But the result of it is this beautiful song. Now, I could do three or four messages on this song. So we're going to be here till Christmas. No, I'm not teasing. We're not. Uh, instead, just because we could be here till Christmas with just this song, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to just give you two hopefully important overarching points and truths about this song. First, Mary's song is true praise. It is biblical worship. Mary's song is a great teacher to all of us, reminding us about certain worship fundamentals. I so appreciated the new song that we had this morning. It ticks off every one of these boxes. First of all, the object of worship. It's God, not us. The object of worship is God, not us. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies me. No, my soul magnifies who? The Lord. Now, literally, that word magnify means to, to enlarge, to make larger, to honor highly, to praise the greatness of. So the goal of worship is to glorify God, to see the awesomeness, the concept of God enlarged in our own hearts and minds and in our vision of who God is to made great, be made greater in the world around us, to praise his greatness and to honor him. So to do this, the focus has to be on him, not on us. I think it's, it's profound that we point out that here is Mary, the mother of the Messiah, yet her focus it's on God and God alone. Secondly, the source of worship is a heart that is overflowing with spirit-filled gratitude. 
Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit, small s, rejoices in God, my savior. That word spirit means the entirety, entirety of your inner being. What we would, we would say, our heart. And Oliver, her, her inner being was consumed with this honor of worshiping God. Jesus, 33 years or 32 or 31 years later from this moment, will be speaking to a Samaritan woman and sitting by the well. And in that conversation, he echoes this truth about worship in John 4, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The source of worship, our worship, isn't to be from the flesh. It is from a heart that is consumed with our Savior. And as our heart is filled with the wonder of God, it flows out of our mouth and in our lives with worship. Thirdly, the focus of worship is the actual person and the work of God. If you look at verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Just noted a couple of moments ago that Mary did not magnify herself in her song. Instead, she pointed to God. Instead of magnifying herself, she praised God for his attributes, for his character, for his work. And as you go on through the song, it's all about who God is and what he has done, not herself. So often, um, my experience is that uh, Christians oftentimes make worship about ourselves. Did we enjoy it? Did I like worship? Well, worship was okay this morning. I didn't get much out of worship this morning, as if that's Paxson's fault. <laughs> it's not, just for the record. You know, I didn't like that song. It was too loud. Ooh, the guitar was jamming. The lights are too bright. The lights are too dim. The benches are too hard. And they are. Okay? <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you looking forward to those new comfortable seats? I know I am. And I get to stand up here for 30 minutes. I feel sorry for you. Uh, you know, Philip Riken points out that it is right for us to praise God for what he has done as Mary did. But sometimes even our worship of God can be somewhat self-centered, as if the really important thing is what God has done for us. We need to look beyond this to see God as he is in himself and to praise him for being God. Then, when we speak about what God has done for us, as we should, it will be more about him and less about us. In other words, church, our starting point in worship is supposed to be about God, his person, his attributes. And what you see with Mary is worship that focuses on the person and the work of God, his might, his power, his holiness, his strength, his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness. 
So Mary's song, true praise and biblical worship. Mary's song is also revolutionary. It's revolutionary. Remember, God upends the status quo to accomplish his will. And Mary's song, it illustrates the revolutionary nature of the gospel and how it challenges the world's presuppositions and its values. We see this in her song in several different ways. Verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why, is, why do we call her blessed? Because she is the mother of our Lord. And how logic-defying is that? How completely upending of the status quo was it for God to choose this little young girl in Nazareth in the middle of Galilee of the Gentiles? It was an area that Jews didn't even like to go to. And she's the mother of our Savior. She's the mother of God. Like, like we pointed out a couple of weeks ago from Kent Hughes, she is a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. This, is, this defies logic. This is not the way we would have done it. Not at all. But that's the revolutionary nature of the gospel. He upends our normal way of thinking and the status quo. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The social norms that were in play, the stratification of society, the ethnic prejudices and the racial discrimination that marked ancient Israel, the gospel turned all that upside down turns it upside down in our nation today. And he does so by telling us, my mercy is for everyone. It's for everyone who will fear me. Jew, Gentile, white, black, brown, doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's amazing to me that as we think about the Middle Eastern conflict, there are more Christians in Gaza than there are in the nation of Israel. There are more Christians on the West Bank than there are in Israel. You talk about turning things upside down. The people who the Messiah came to rejected him. And the people that, that, that oftentimes are looked down on, many of them have believed, but not the, the ones that were chosen as the seed of Abraham, the original ethnic seed. They have it. Upside down. Again, Luke is introducing something to us, something that he is going to develop more and more throughout this gospel. Church, Jesus is for everyone. This is the good news of the gospel. Anyone in this room who wants Jesus, Jesus is for you. He's for everyone who wants him. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Think about it. This revolutionary nature of the gospel. God honors and God pours out his grace and mercy on the weak and the needy, not the strong and the self-sufficient. He has helped, verse 54, his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now note that 
Mary is prophesying here. The, the tense of these verbs is all past tense, as if it has been completed. But it hasn't been completed yet. But yet the promises of God, Mary says, are so certain that the very people who reject and crucify the Lord, who have turned from him, even now a nation that is a majority nation of atheists, there is coming a day when God is going to remember his promises to Abraham and there will be a remnant of Israel, national Israel, that will be a part of God's eternal kingdom. And Mary says, this will happen, not because Israel deserves it, but because God is that good. That is why he will fulfill it all based upon his character, not our goodness. What an incredible song from Mary. We can't cover the, all the songs in chapter one, by the way. We're just gonna do Mary's, and that's okay, it's enough. Because even today, when we ask, so what?, her song gives us so much that we can ponder. I want us to close with just two simple gospel applications. First of all, this word blessed, the recipe for a blessed life in the Bible is not a secret. The, the, the brother of Jesus, James, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. A blessed life begins by recognizing who you are and who we are before God in our own self, in our natural man, how desperately we need his intervention in our life because we are born sinners, we are corrupted by sin apart from God and his work in our life and the indwelling of his spirit. Everything we would do would be dishonoring to God. And so it begins by recognizing this and turning to God by trusting in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you want joy in your life, it begins right there. It's not complicated. It's clear in the scriptures. It's not a secret sauce recipe. It's humble yourselves before God. Confess your sin and your need for a Savior and trust your life to Him and follow Him and He will redeem you. There's a second important gospel application, though. And this is what I would call the paradox of blessedness. The paradox of blessedness. Quick question, not a rhetorical. I want somebody to speak back to me. When you think of the word blessed in our society, in our world, what is the characterization, the definition, the illustration of being blessed in our modern society? What does that look like? Money. What else? Wealth health, things, power, fame, awesome, reputation, you know, great family, kids that score perfect on the SAT and don't cost you any college tuition. I mean, there's just different <laughs> pictures there. I mean, that's what you guys are praying for, right? You got five of them, amen. Um, so <laughs> this is a blessed life. But church, an important aspect of the gospel is how it turns society's values upside down. God upends the status quo to carry out and accomplish his will. He upends our self-evaluations. He upends our concepts of sin and evil and redemption and how to be saved. He upends our values. It's throughout the gospel. The first will be what? 
last. The rich will be made poor, and the poor will be made rich. The, the proud and the mighty will be brought low, and the humble will be exalted. He upends the values of the world. And then because of this, he has also upended our understanding of what it means to be blessed and to have a good life. A God-blessed life is not a pain-free, carefree life of luxury and leisure. A blessed life, a God-blessed life, is not a pain-free, carefree life of luxury and leisure. For example, Mary's blessedness comes with a stigma that will follow her for the rest of her life. She goes to, back to her little village where every girl is expected to be a virgin, where you can be stoned to death if you are not a virgin, and she's pregnant. And her answer to the nosy neighbor, oh no, I've never had sex, I'm a virgin. Joseph and I have never slept together. The Holy Spirit created this baby within me. Oh yeah, sure. Sure. I, I would suggest to you that there are hints of this stigma in, later in the New Testament when Jesus, for example, at the beginning of his ministry, and he sits down, he visits Nazareth, and he teaches and preaches in the synagogue, and he sits down and he proclaims the word, and the response of the villagers, the scorn that is in their voices is not because of his teaching, but because of whose son he is. This stigma will follow her for the rest of her life. Church, the blessings of the gospel, they come with a price sometimes. Jesus, think about him. He's blessed to be the fulfillment of God's promises of eternal exaltation, yet that blessing had to run through the pain of the cross. We are blessed to be called children of God, and we are promised eternal life. Yet that blessing involves us taking up the cross and following him. For God's people, blessing and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, in the Bible, that's called joy. Joy. Lord Jesus, sometimes our thinking, even the way we define words, is more influenced by our society and our world than your word. Help us to think Christianly. As we look at the things going on in our world, even today, may we think with the mind of Christ. May your values become our values. Would you do that work of grace in our life? Father, the one who's here this morning, who's looking for joy, would you help them to see that that joy comes through the person and presence of Jesus in their life? There'll be no real joy until they follow Jesus. And Lord, for the Christian who's here, and we yearn for a better life, a certain kind of life, as we walk this earthly soil, would you help us to see that our citizenship is in heaven and that your definition and your characterization 
of the blessed life is what really matters. May we exalt in the blessings that you pour out upon us each day. May we follow you, even when those blessings involve us paying some, a price that is painful. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.